dedication for Rolf and Christian. To learn a poem in but one language, especially if the language is not your own, is like climbing a mountain alone by its most direct and arduous route. To learn a great poem in two or more languages is to climb the same mountain, but now from many different sides, perhaps together with friends. Then we may come to see that the summit is the place where all the many directions which we once perceived as so different are clearly one, and that the mountain itself, no matter how many times we climb it, remains forever pristine and pure, forever beyond our understanding. This, then, is the place where the poem has brought us, the place where all language ends. Evening Slowly the evening changes into the clothes held for it by a row of ancient trees. You watch in two worlds grow separate from you, one ascending to heaven, another that falls and leave you belonging not wholly to either one, not quite as dark as the house that remains silent, not quite as certainly sworn to eternity as that which becomes star each night and rises and leave you unsayably to disentangle your life with all its immensity and fear in great ripening, so that, all but bounded, all but understood, it is by turns stone in you, in star. Abend Der Abend wechselt langsam die Gewände, die ihm meine Rand von alten Bäumen hält. Du schaust, und von der scheiden sich die Länder, ein himmelfahrendes und eins das Feld, und lassen dich zu keinen ganz gehörend, nicht ganz so dunkel, wie das Haus, das schweigt, nicht ganz so sicher ewiges Beschwörend, wie das, was stehen wird jede Nacht und steigt. Und lassen dir unsäglich zu entwehen, 
dein Leben bang und riesenhaft und reifend, so dass es bald begrenzt und bald begreifend, abwechselnd Stein in der Welt und Gestirn. Chill mountains of the heart. Wind out of nowhere, rocks fracturing from high vertical cliffs. Oh, chill mountains of the heart. When will I learn the ancient art of stone pine and nutcracker, of making my stash of seeds of hope come good years and come bad? Chill mountains of the heart. 
steep descent into the winding waters of compassion, slow steady rise of mist in broken light, razor ridge dividing known from unknown, and unknown from unknowable. Horizon forever retreating as I come near. O oh, sheer signal fire of peace.
and the necessity of poetry. 1. Walking from spring to spring, one tires quickly of all the intellectual bush-beating, telling me I'm not thirsty when I'm thirsty. 2. Let's be simple. A house without a hearth is a home without a center. After somebody lets the fire go out, they always like to tell you that it wasn't important. 3. Have you ever noticed that bird calls are often answered by silences of equal duration? Who is to say which one, the sound or the silence, is more important? 4. We are born naked, we make love naked, and we die naked. Though not strictly necessary, doing poetry naked seems to work just fine. 5. Once the commons are fenced in and sold, on that very ground will argue incessantly about the necessity of poetry. On the masculine energy of control. Once the balance of masculine and feminine principles is lost, mere competition between the genders will replace complementarity. There's something about the decidedly masculine energy of control that loves the crisp, clear, straight lines of a laser or bullet's trajectory. Think of it. Straight walls, straight pipes, straight roads, straight dams. Pity the time when we no longer cry out that life is not only a matter of the shortest, most efficient route between points A and B, but that there is more, and that life is from another perspective, the eternally feminine, essentially round. Pity the time when time itself is seen not just as an arrow flying fast and furious to its goal, but also a mysterious rhythmic pulse of wheels turning within wheels which comes round 
with the miracle of each new birth. Pity the time when we acquiesce in our silence and become at once both imitator and victim of this powerful but oh so one-sided straight-line universe of men in love with the illusion of mechanical control. On holigarchy, the order of the whole, holigarchy is the mutual cogeneration of whole and parts. With holigarchy, both whole and parts share in a kind of co-relative equal importance in the distribution of generative intelligence. This is, of course, in marked contrast to the idea of hierarchy, or how we normally conceive of organizational structure as an ascending ladder of importance or rank. Higher is more, lower less. Higher or lower of X of whatever, power, control, information, money, or all of these. Hierarchy we see as a kind of directional flow of order and importance from the top to the bottom, as in the classic military or corporate structure. Or as a somewhat weaker and less common alternative, there is also the more grassroots interpretation of the flow of order and hierarchy from the bottom up. In contrast, what is unique about what I'm calling oligarchy is the generative flow of order both from the bottom up and the top down. The model or paradigm I always like to keep in mind that is actually here is that of acoustic harmonic sound. Briefly, with a harmonic series, the ground tone or fundamental generates the higher harmonics or overtones, while at the same time, these harmonics or overtones come round by means of different tones to reinforce, or when the fundamental is, for example, for whatever reason absent, actually regenerate a new ground tone. Actually regenerate a new ground tone. Within the classical music tradition, this regeneration principle was used in the Baroque era, especially in the Italy of Stradivari and Vivaldi, to great effect. And then nearly two centuries later, once again by the French-American composer Edgar Varese, but now to create totally unique, vibrantly alive sound complexes. My conjecture, again here very briefly, is that this oligarchic principle of mutual cogeneration of part and whole may be very much more common in the natural world than we at present realize.
Memory is spatial. We shape the world, and the world shapes us. Arrange the objects you use every day in a queer spatial array, and you'll never have to think of where to find them. The hand simply moves to the left or to the right and picks up your book and writing pen without giving it a second thought. Indeed, this is perhaps one of the more important meanings of second nature. The objects and tools and artifacts we work with become easily and naturally extensions of ourselves. This should be a guiding principle of digital design. Finding things should never be self-consciously visual, but rather unconsciously spatial. We shouldn't have to think about the tools that help us think. Watercourse Way We shape the world, and the world shapes us. Balance and art follows the natural movements of water and weather. Fast mountain streams give way to the slow, supple curves of lowland rivers. In the broad expanses of the sea, dark, cold rains are followed by bright skies and the happy warmth of the sun. Balance is never either or, but rather the course which runs between extremes, the culture which has lost direct resonance with these movements of the symphony of life will also necessarily lose its sense of balance and measure in its art. Runaway Deceptions A runaway deception is a false or negative idea which is put into a positive feedback loop much like a microphone feeding back on itself and wildly amplifying its own sound. Runaway deceptions as ideas tend to be self-reinforcing. Once you have the idea that, for instance, all Arabs are terrorists, just the earthy, guttural sound of their language, which few in the West feel any sympathy for, let alone speak fluently or understand, is enough to trigger fear and hate and violence. And when we approach the world with such fear and hate and violence, the world will most likely answer us in kind, thereby wrapping round itself and giving still more energy to the deception. In this way, runaway deceptions also tend to be self-destructive. In their extreme, fundamentalist form, the survival of the false idea of the deception itself, that it should prevail, may very well become more important than one's own survival. Runaway deception, indeed.
double bond, our troubled relationship with the earth. God wrote the music, but the devil conducts. Don't forget, everyone must play in the symphony of life. The contract says forever. So we push our buttons and hit our drums and stroke our strings all at the devil's command. Remember, everyone must play. The contract says forever. He reminds us, poor child, there's no way in hell you can live without the results. And we believe him. Uranium 238, a thought poem. It's an illusion to think of uranium as a thing, a rock, a fuel, a metal. Uranium is not a thing. Uranium is a movement, a deadly movement. A devil's staircase decomposing, decaying, descending, down a dark one-way shaft to the bottom of Oppenheimer's hell. In one breath, astatine, bismuth, polonium, protactinium, radium, radon, thallium, thorium. Names a hundred years ago nobody had to worry about. Now giving off neutrons as sharp as razor blades. Invisible slow motion death for the cells of life. Until finally, turns into solid lead. Amsterdam by night. City of tolerance, city of enlightenment, city where Thoreau would cash his pack, where we look for Whitman in the dust under our boots, city where Emerson would lead the charge against the Queen's palace on the Dom. City of winding waters, slow, dark, brooding Amstel against the bright lights of Carré. 
City measured by the steps of feet, by the circumference of bicycle wheels, by the number of pubs open past midnight, packed tight with reef spirits dreaming up the next chapter in the book of democracy, the next chapter in a people's symphony, wild assemblage of the helter-skelter with a heart of symmetry aprisca. Look, there goes Dickinson on her pink bike with elephant wings, chasing Wilders in the last Puritans out of town. Under a bright North Star, Friedrich Douglas speaks, and the whole world listens. Diabolus in Cannabis Demonizing a holy native plant, gift of the gods, of one thousand uses, of ten thousand years of practiced universal cultivation, is hard work, requiring a meanness of spirit beyond mere torture, drawing on the darkest of energies, like those censorious pilgrims of Cape Cod, pillaring maidens free enough to go fishing on Sundays in the name of their one and only Lord, all the while thinking, bitch, get up on it, demonizing the smoke of the hail whole healthy is hell. Yes, the work of crazed generalissimos in war, presidents, see Kyle, spray, eradicate, lock em up. But beware, sightings of Lenin have been reported, speeding cross-country in Reagan's black Cadillac, sowing seeds from coast to coast, a self-fulfilling prophecy Weed, yes, there it is, amigo, growing free and wild again, healer of all. Songs of a Wayfarer On a way, a dark and misty way, stands a linden tree. 
It is the first day of fall, but its leaves are still green. The crown of the tree fills its space with a thousand rivulets and rills, which shade off into the limitless morning gray. It is the first day of fall, and a young man stops to rest under the tree. He has been here before, but the way in mist and day seem darker than in the past. He takes a small wooden flute to play the great linden a song, a song both happy and sad, both bright and dark. No name do we have for this round of thirds that is nature's way. No name do we have for the sounds of fresh spring, for the bare ground of frozen winter. And so we must sing, must sing ourselves back into the wholeness of the world. It is the first day of fall. Oh, such sadness, such joy. Stone Song Words going backwards are on their way to you so that you may hear your ears are gone Sentences inside out because your knowing is gone. Song to surround you, stone against stone. Against the sounding board of the night, your words still move. Everything that you have said remains alive in the sound of chords that I encounter only in darkness, when the silences that have been put up between us are listening.
Manifests in the number that connected the two of us. Nothing is in the apparatus other than the hissing of eternity. Perhaps that the opening of an eye will repeat itself, a trembling of silk that has not yet passed away and that still wishes to be audible. O oh, sign that you have survived to have found a place in the ring. Figures of my assurance. Walking the World, Backpack Pilgrim, an essay composed and read for picture poems by Cliff Kriego. The journey of the pilgrim is essentially one of negation, of taking away or dropping that which is unnecessary. Each step becomes simpler and lighter than the one which preceded it. Today will be a day of descent, heading south into the Italian-speaking part of the European Alps. For five days now, I've been winding my way through a labyrinthian landscape of small, uninhabited alpine valleys. But now, I've reached a major divide, the point where two vast watersheds meet and diverge, one flowing northwest, the other southeast. 
out of this natural articulation of the land into parts, different cultures and languages have emerged and flowered. But here, unlike the busy border crossings used by trucks and cars, there are no signs to mark the spot or men in uniforms asking for passports. There's just a clan of alpine jackdaws, all shiny black, riding the late morning thermals in ever higher, higher spirals at home on either side of the divide. One bird breaks away from the others, folds its wings, and dives headlong into the distance as his body gracefully modulates into something like the small black dot which ends a printed phrase. One must inwardly prepare for these high alpine crossings. It is not just the uncomfortable feeling of passing through this strangely alien zone of the north side of a mountain with its deep shadows impermanent cold. Nor is it just the powerful sense of the world contracting around you as the rock walls of a narrow coal close in, giving back the metallic sound of your crampons biting into the icy fern snow of early fall. As the pass grows steeper in the zigzag of ascent tightens into a line of single steps one above the other, I always feel the need to compose myself before the final moment of crossing the divide to the other side. Every time, every crossing is always the first. One must know this for oneself, this great wave, this vast sense of space which suddenly rushes in. This is the moment for me when all the memories of the past, all the poems I've struggled to understand, all the music I've ever performed, both the good and the bad, simply wither and fall away. To gaze out upon the entire breadth and width of a wild valley you have never seen before, taking it in, as it were, in a single breath, and to know that this is where you are headed full of all the exciting prospect of the new and the unknown, is truly something magnificent. But it's too windy and cold up here to linger long, so I scramble carefully, one step at a time, about three or four hundred meters down a boulder field. Looking ahead, I can already see terrain that is less steep in a small, inviting, sunny spot near a stream to sit, have something to drink, and rest a while. The granite rocks are all about the size of small cars, balanced precariously one on top of the other. I can't help thinking that in spring this would be one long, smooth glissando or glide down the mountain over hard-packed snow. But now, with fall, the intense sunlight of the southern exposure has long ago melted all the winter snow. So different, the smooth, continuous rhythm of my ascent over north side ice, and now the irregular rough jerks and leaps 
of the happy sunny south side. The nearest village is still almost two vertical kilometers below, but I can already hear the traffic of a major north-south connecting highway. The sound rises on the same gentle updrafts which carry the jackdaws still circling above. Like so many other areas of contemporary life, mountaineering has unfortunately fragmented into just so many specialties with a characteristic emphasis on outward measure, ever higher, ever faster, ever more difficult. What used to be called the freedom of the hills is now frequently traded in for a list of personal achievements attached to one's name like medals on a chest. And now that most peaks have already been named and climbed, the search for something new and spectacular has taken on the air of the ridiculous, being determined mostly by the clock, climbed in half the normal time. Ironically, the clock, that prototypical artifact of the mechanical way of life, was the very thing one wanted to get away from by going to the mountains in the first place. I must confess that I prefer the more open country of mountaineering is pilgrimage, climbing peaks perhaps when the views are good, but just discontented with the pass. This is pilgrimage not in the sense of journeying to especially beautiful or powerful sites, but more as a movement this is pilgrimage is a movement which, like poetry, essentially takes away, dropping freely, without forcing, that which is inherently wasteful or unnecessary. The cars and trucks of the road below move in a very different direction. The roar of a diesel grinding its way up the sharp curves and steep grades of a mountain pass if greed has a sound, this is it. The bells of a small flock of sheep wake me from my nap. I need to get going. I still have to go down, get food, gas for the cooker, and climb up the other side of this valley and find a new camp before dark. After a good bit of cross-country rambling, I pick up the faint trace of an old goat herd's trail. It passes a cluster of stone huts, the roofs having collapsed many years ago. Evidently, the stronger vertical order of the walls only very slowly gives itself back to the random shuffle of a natural pile. Further down, gradually leaving the low juniper, cranberries, and kinnikinnick of the alpine tundra, I come into the larger, more erect trees of the continuous forest. Here, the trail becomes an ancient ox-cart path, the work of many generations. Each stone laid like a well-chosen word in a carefully constructed phrase and worn well 
like a phrase worth repeating. It's so remarkable, this difference between the view within the car and the view of the highway from the vantage point of the forest clearing where I now stand. Clearly, the automobile is not simply a neutral mode of transportation. It is something more like a way of being, a kind of metaphysics on wheels. To step into the car and close the door is to turn the key which activates an entire self-worldview. Comfortably seated, a gentle breeze coming in from the half-opened windows, the speaker in the back playing one's favorite music at just the right volume, enough of the motor's purr filters through to let one know this is all real and no mere projection on a screen. The foot on the pedal, the hands on the wheel. It's hard to think of another context which gives us such a strong sense of power and control. From within the car, all is order and harmony. But this, of course, is an illusion, one which is evidently extremely difficult to break. Seen from the wider context of the car plus environment, the car is unequivocally a disorderly, destructive instrument. This is not just because of the toxic gases which are suffocating the spruce forests or the trees through which I now pass. It's also because the car itself has driven us into a state of isolation and indifference which at once destroys both the land and, in a far more subtle way, the sensitivity necessary to see the destruction. Tragically, as every environmentalist knows, as long as we remain within the artificial world of cars and car culture, everything will appear perfectly okay. Hey, what's the problem? Get out of the way. Crossing a footbridge over the road, I look down on the steady flow of trucks, motorcycles, campers, and cars. This is a flow which has tremendous mechanical power behind it. Listening to the noise it generates gives one a sense of how difficult it will be to change. But there is also the ever-present possibility of simply stopping, getting out of the car, venturing up to higher ground. To pause is evidently momentarily to dissipate the energy that is caught in the loop which sustains the illusion. In the gap there is the potential of a new awareness, a new understanding, a new beginning. Perhaps I'll return to the car. Perhaps I won't. But as the jackdaws have always known, from the land far above the roads, the views are superb. <laughs>